But uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19, and I'll be reading through verse 23. So Paul here writes, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. So here we are, continuing our study through 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, Again, we will do so by looking back at what we saw last time in verses 15 through 18, as Paul continues his sort of description of his practice, what he did as he applies the principle that he taught in chapter 8 about how if food, verse 13 is the key verse there, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul's principle, Paul's guiding principle in all of this is that while he has liberty, he is willing to forego his liberty for the sake of a brother, a weaker brother in this case, one who is um, confused, if you will, about things offered to idols. That's how the chapter starts. This is all in one big section talking about things offered to idols. And those who have the knowledge, he says, you know, if you just have the knowledge, that makes you arrogant, that, or at least it can make you arrogant. Love is what we need here. Love builds up, or love edifies. And the loving thing to do here is to edify the weaker brother, and if that means to forego some of your liberties, then so be it. Paul is willing to do that. All for the advance of the gospel. But as we saw at the beginning of chapter 9, right, Paul says he has rights. He does have rights, he does have freedoms, he does have liberties because of the fact that he is an apostle. Here we see, um, he says, am I not an apostle? Chapter 9, verse 1, am I not free? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you not my work in the Lord? So he's like, as an apostle, I have rights, I have liberty, I have these things that are afforded to me. He is free. He has Christian liberty. Jesus said in the Gospel of John chapter 8, verse 32, the Son makes you free, and if you have been made free, you are free indeed. Free from the law. Free from sin. Free from the ceremonial and judicial aspects of the law. Free from the condemnation that is found under the law. Christians are free to engage in activity that is not explicitly, explicitly forbidden in Scripture. In a lot of cases, you have freedom to partake of certain things up to a certain extent. Um, And some of these things can be reasonably inferred from Scripture. Paul, as an apostle, had certain other rights. He had the right to receive support from the church for his labors, as the other apostles did. But in regard to that last point, as we saw last time in verse 15... Also in verse 12, he says, I've used none of these things. 
And in verse 15, he even goes so fur, uh, a little further to say, I have not written in order to sort of guilt trip you into these things. Paul forgoes his rights. Paul makes a choice. He's not obligated to do this. He is not forced to do this. He makes a choice, a willing choice, to forego the right to obtain support from the church in order to present, as he said last week, the gospel free of charge. That was Paul's boast. That was Paul's reward. He wanted to present the gospel free of charge. He didn't want to be like the teachers in Corinth that sort of uh, profited from their teaching. He didn't want to be one that profits off the gospel. And we looked at some examples last time of people who profit off the gospel, so-called, you know, out there who are teaching all kinds of error because they can profit from it. They can get power, they can get wealth, they can get both prestige as they peddle the gospel. Paul didn't want to put any obstacles in the way of the Corinthian church. He didn't want anyone in the Corinthian church to say to him, well, Paul, this is why you're doing this. Or, or, Paul, I'm not sure I believe the gospel because of this in your life. No, he wanted to make sure there was a clear, smooth runway for the gospel to land and take off, so to speak, to carry on the metaphor, in their lives. In fact, Paul didn't even boast about his preaching of the gospel, right? He says that in verse 16, if I preach the gospel... I have nothing to boast of. In other words, if I, if I do what I've been called to do, I have no reason to boast because that's what I've been called to do. That's what Jesus called me to do. That's what Jesus did on the road to Damascus when he called me out of the life of dead-end Pharisaism and said, you will be my chosen vessel. And then at that time, Paul's like, okay, I don't really have a choice in this matter. <laughs> right? I mean, how much choice did Paul have in his call to be an apostle to the Gentiles? He had zero choice, right? Jonah, how much call did, choice did Jonah have in his, in his call to be an apostle or a messenger or a prophet to Nineveh? Zero choice. He tried to run away from it. Didn't work out for him, right? Same thing with Jeremiah. Same thing with all these people. They are called. Paul says, look, I don't preach the gospel, as he says, willingly. Not that he does it reluctantly. He just like, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. That's what he says. I've been given a task. I've been given a charge. And I'm, and I'm just carrying out that charge. So I can't really boast of it. The only thing I can boast of is that when I preach and discharge my duty to you all, I do so free of charge so as to not provide any reason for complaint or hindrance to the gospel. So here we are now at verses 19 through 23. And Paul here is still in this extended illustration. Again, remember, this is all part and parcel of the section in 1 Corinthians that begins in chapter 8 concerning things offered to idols. This is all part of it. Chapter 9 is all part of it. But chapter 9 really is one long, extended illustration of how Paul, in his own life and practice, carries this principle out of foregoing his freedom for those who are weaker in the faith. And he's going to say, now this is, in a sense, what you should all do. You should all be willing to let go of your liberty for the sake of the weaker brother. So he extends this, and this is an extension of his own practice, again, that we saw in verse 13, where he says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And what 
you know, 19 through 23 really flows out of that, if you will. It flows out of chapter 8, verse 13. It also flows out of chapter 9, verse 18. So it's, it's just a kind of a continuation of Paul's thought. And here Paul's going to talk about being a servant to all. That's his practice and how he preaches the gospel. He wants to be a servant to all. And then how that looks in particular cases. He gives some examples of how he is a servant to all. In the case of uh, Jews, in the case of Gentiles, and in the case of the weaker brother. And then how all of this, he will conclude, all of this is for the sake of the gospel. He's not trying to win brownie points, right? He's not trying to have people say, oh, Paul, what a wonderful person you are. He is doing all of this is motivated by the gospel, making sure the gospel goes forth. Paul is willing to do almost anything short of sin, right? He's willing to do almost anything short of sin to make sure the gospel goes forth. That is, that is his driving motivation in all of this. So he begins here in verse 19 by talking about how he is a servant to all all for the sake of the gospel. So Paul says in verse 18 of the chapter, in the last section there, his reward, his reward is that he may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Again, Paul does not want to abuse the gospel. Paul does not want to use the gospel for his own selfish means. He wants to uh, not that's what he wants to do. He wants to present it without charge and to check and make sure that he doesn't abuse any authority that he has in the gospel. And then coming on the heels of that, he says in verse 19, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I may win the more. Now again, if you remember back in chapter 9, verse 1, Paul asks rhetorically, because he asks a whole bunch of rhetorical questions in chapter 9, am I not free? And here he continues that, I am free of all men. And as we said earlier, Paul is free in Christ. There is freedom in Christ. There is liberty in Christ. Again, liberty of being out from under the law. Paul says this in Romans, right? You are no longer under the law, you are under Christ. You are free from all of this. He is free from Christ, set free from sin's penalty. Right? In Christ, we are free from the penalty of sin because Christ took that penalty upon himself. So we are free from the penalty of sin. We are no longer under condemnation. Romans 8, verse 1, that wonderful verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk according to the law. He is also set free from the law's demands because in Christ, as we see in Romans 3, right, we have fulfilled the law. Not in our own works, but we have fulfilled the law because we have the righteousness of Christ applied to us who has perfectly fulfilled the law. So when God looks at us and sees us, He sees us through the lens of His Son, Jesus Christ. And He doesn't see sinner. He doesn't look upon me and see sinner because in Christ, he looks upon me and sees righteous in Christ. He sees lawkeeper in Christ, one who has fulfilled all the demands of the law in Christ. So we are, in a sense, free. But 
again, Paul, by choice, not by any kind of commandment or law or demand upon him, by choice, he makes himself a servant to all. He has made himself a servant. That word is derived out of the same word we see that Paul uses whenever he opens a letter. Right, Paul, depending on your translation, you might see a slave of Christ, you might see a servant of Christ, you might see a bondservant of Christ. It's all the same word. It's doulos, which means slave or servant or bondservant. Paul enslaves himself, if you will. Right? He, he willingly goes into servitude in order to serve the needs and the means of Christ. He, is a, he, is a, he makes himself a servant in order to be a servant to all men so that he might win some. There's a practice in the Old Testament, and it's mentioned in the New Testament uh, also, but in the, in the Old Testament, if you were a slave, in the sense of slavery, of course, in the Old Testament is typically very different. Uh, you were in servitude if you couldn't pay off debts or whatever. But if you loved your master and it was time for you to be set free, you could willingly go under and continue to serve in your master's household because you love your master. And then they would do something with an awl in your ear and kind of mark you as someone who is now a slave willingly. Yeah. Yeah, so they would take you to the doorpost and kind of like punch an awl through your earlobe. I'm assuming it's the earlobe. You know, I can't imagine like into your head or something. like that. <laughs> Maybe for some of us that might be an improvement. <laughs> but... This is what Paul is doing. He's like, look, I'm willing to enslave myself for the sake of the gospel in order to win some. So he uses, obviously this is metaphorical, right? He's not literally going to become a slave to people to to do this. You know, you could just tell me whatever to do and I'm going to do it. This is metaphorical. It means he has completely devoted himself to this purpose. I am single-minded in my focus of making sure the gospel goes forth. And if I can do whatever I can to win some more, I'm going to do it. I'm devoted. I have a laser focus on this, a singular focus on this in my life. And that focus, of course, is to win the more. It's an interesting mindset. right? You see this in some of the other missionaries, if you read the stories of the missionaries about how they would do whatever it took. You know, I, I forget, it's a Casey or Carey, the one who went to China. William Carey, who went to China. He said, you know, my heart burns for China, for the people of China. These missionaries who have a, a zeal and a, and a focus and they will do whatever it takes if, to get to wherever they feel they need to go they had to sell their homes, if they had to quit their livelihoods, if they had to sell whatever in order to scrounge up enough money in order to buy passage on a ship to China or India or Africa or wherever, um, they would do that. David Brainerd, who was a colonial uh, mission, he, was, he served in, in, as a missionary to the American Indians in his region, and he literally left the comforts of, well, the relative comforts of colonial life to live among the Indians. And of course that led to his eventual death because he could not receive the medical care and he, he, he worked so hard. I mean, I don't think this guy slept. And he was so burdened to try to win the American Indians in those areas that, that he almost literally worked himself to death. And he, I think he died at the age of 32 or 33. Very young. It was a flame that, that burned hot 
but was you know, burned only for a short period of time because he worked so hard. He threw himself into this. Singular focus that he might win the more. You see that in Paul's life, right? You see that throughout the book of Acts when you see how Paul, what he would do, you know, how he, all the sufferings he suffered, the afflictions he was under because of his zeal to preach the gospel. The same zeal that he had as a, as a, as a Pharisee, right, to persecute the church was the same zeal that he used to promote the gospel, right? He was a very zealous man. A very zealous man. I mean, by all accounts, he wasn't exactly the most gifted orator. He probably wasn't the most pleasant person to look at, by all accounts. He may have been short. He may have had some problem with his eye. He may not have, he says, I don't speak well. But he was a powerful missionary for the gospel. Singular focus. And why not? Because Jesus Christ, again, called him out of a dead-end life. Paul, who was working on his resume, right? We looked at his resume several times in Philippians, how he said, before the law, I am perfect. I've done everything there is to do according to the law to obtain a righteousness from the law. He was, he was well on his way, and he would have been well on his way to hell in his own righteousness, right? He thought he was building up something. He thought he was building up his resume, thought he was building up his bank account of righteousness so he can appear before God and say, look at what I've done, God. Aren't you lucky to have someone like me on your team? Jesus called him out of that and said, you will be my chosen vessel. And that same zeal that he had for persecuting the church was the same zeal he used to build the church, to win more to Christ. And that word there, win, is a Greek word called uh, kerdano or kerdino. It just means to gain or acquire something, uh, you know, any kind of gain, any kind of acquirement. And in this context, of course, it means and speaks of winning someone to the kingdom of God. If I can acquire you for the kingdom of God, I will do whatever it takes, is what Paul is saying here. If I can be a servant to all in order to acquire you for the gospel, I will do whatever it takes. Paul's driving focus was on winning people to Christ, and to do that, he was willing to enslave himself to be a servant to all to win the more. And you could see how this thought is permeating, if you will, its way all throughout this section. It all flows from chapter 8, verse 13, in this context of things offered to idols. Like, how does he show himself to be willing to be a servant to all? He says, well, to the weak. I will give up eating meat. I'm free to eat meat. That's what he says. I, I am no longer under the kosher dietary laws of the Jews, but I will give that up in order to win the weak. If someone is caused to stumble by me eating meat, I'm willing to give that up in order to win that brother to Christ or in order to strengthen that brother in his faith. So that's Paul's primary Focus, right? To be a servant to all that he might win the more. How does it look, though, in the real world? How does he apply this? Well, we're going to see how he applies it here to the Jew, right? To the Jew, I became a Jew. Paul begins with his brethren according to the flesh, if you will, borrowing language from Romans 9, the Jews, verse 20. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. 
to those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Now, it may not seem outrageous to say that for the Jews, Paul became a Jew, because wasn't he already kind of a Jew? <laughs> right? What's he saying there, right? It's like, you're already a Jew, Paul. What do you mean you became a Jew to the Jewish? Well, what he means there is that he was willing to, in a sense, go back and observe whatever Jewish practices he felt comfortable observing in order to win Jewish people. If it meant eating kosher, he would eat kosher. If it meant observing Sabbath uh, regulations and rituals, he would do that. He may even participate in certain religious services if it meant to win the Jews. He's not returning to Judaism. He is participating in certain rituals for a purpose. And that is, again, that I might win more Jews. We see this in Acts chapter 16, verse 3. In Acts chapter 16, Timothy joins the group. All right, Paul is in Lystra and Derby, and he runs across Timothy, and he is so impressed with Timothy that, that he wants to bring Timothy with him, but he understands that I'm going to be heading into some Jewish situations, and the fact that your father is Greek and you're not circumcised, that might be a roadblock. So he has Timothy circumcised in chapter 16, verse 3. It's not required to be done. He didn't have to do it. In fact, chapter 15 argues that you don't have to do it. That was the whole point of chapter 15. Because Judaizers from Jerusalem were coming to Antioch and the other Gentile churches and saying, you have to be circumcised first before you can become a Christian. You have to be a Jew first. And Paul's like, no, no, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> Is that like a pop song, right? No, 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 no. No, you don't have to be circumcised first to become a Christian. The whole book of Galatians is about that. The Judaizing error. No, you do not add to the gospel. You do not subtract from the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. And if you're going to do that, you are denying the gospel and therefore you are accursed. So why does he have Paul, uh, Timothy circumcised? He has him circumcised because of the Jews who are in that region. He wasn't applying the Old Testament ceremonial sign to Timothy, but simply doing what he felt necessary to win Jews and not put a stumbling block in their path. If Timothy was left uncircumcised, there might be a case that would come up that Jews would not talk to Paul because he was associating with a Gentile. Similarly, we see another situation in Acts 21, verses 23 to 26, at the request of James, the brother of Jesus, Paul agrees to pay the purifying expense for some Jewish brothers who had taken a vow. He comes in, he says, well, we've got some brothers here who are taking a vow, why don't you pay for their expenses? And Paul willingly goes ahead and does that. In fact, Paul himself had taken a vow. And there was a case where he has to go, he tells some of the you know, churches in some letters, and, and we see this in Acts 2, he says, I need to get to Jerusalem because I'm under a vow and I have to finish my vow. He shaves his head when he finishes his vow and so on and so forth. Again, Paul's purpose isn't to be a Jew again. He's not trying to go backwards in a salvation kind of sense. He's not, he's not like what the author of Hebrews warns the Hebrew people there you know, of rejecting Christ and returning back to Judaism. Right? That's not what Paul is doing. 
Paul is not rejecting Christianity and going back to Judaism. He is doing certain things, certain practices that are not in and of themselves sinful in order to accommodate himself to Jewish believers, in order to have an inroad to Jewish believers, or Jewish, uh, I should say, Jewish uh, seekers, if you will. He's doing this to win the Jews. And if it meant obeying kosher laws and having Timothy circumcised, he would, he would do that. And then he goes on to speak of those who are under the law here. As to those who are under the law, I'm, I will uh, be as one under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Now, who are these people who are under the law? Well, in a sense, they're Jewish. But the most common argument is that these are sort of Gentile converts to Judaism or proselytes, those who, are, who have brought themselves under the Jewish law to become part of the Jewish people. That's the common way of thinking of this because uh, he's already mentioned Jews by saying to the Jew I became as a Jew. So I believe, I think he's speaking of Gentile proselytes or converts to Judaism. And he's, again, he says here is, one who is, to those who are under the law, I will be as one under the law. Now in Romans 6.14, Paul says we are not under the law. Right? We are under grace. Romans 6.14. We are no longer under the law. And again, Paul's desire is not to sort of take the car of redemptive history and pop it in reverse and go backwards. Okay? You know, redemptive history goes in one direction. It's forward. And in this case, it goes from shadow to substance. It goes from promise to fulfillment. Paul is not trying to go back to shadows. He's not trying to go back to the era of promise. He is, again, just saying, as one under the law, under the old covenant, I will behave as one under the law, even though I know the old covenant is obsolete. The old covenant has been fulfilled in the coming of Christ. Christ comes, he fulfills the old covenant. Christ comes, right? He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but what? I came to fulfill it. I came to fulfill it. And he did with his death on the cross. He fulfilled all of the ceremonial and, and ritual aspects of the Jewish law, of the old covenant. But here, Paul says, I, I will partake of certain Jewish practices. You know, I will, in a sense, operate as if I'm in the Old Covenant in order to win those who are in the Old Covenant and bring them into the New Covenant. Again, but he's in no way going back to being under the yoke of the Mosaic Law. That is something you should not do. You don't go backwards, redemptive historically speaking. It goes in one direction. You don't put yourself back under the yoke of the law. Because again, what Paul tells the Galatians, it's like if you want to be under the law, then you better keep the whole thing. <laughs> you better keep the whole thing, right? Because if you're guilty in one aspect of it, you're guilty in every aspect of it. So again, this is all a means to the end. This is all a means to an end, to win more people to Christ. Now he moves on to Gentiles, verse 21. So he turns his attention from the Jews and Jewish proselytes to Gentiles, those who are without the law, verse 21. To those who are without law, as without law. Then parenthetically, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. 
that I might win those who are without law. I like how Paul puts that parenthetical comment in there. Again, given the context of the Corinthians, right? You know, if he says without law, they may be thinking, oh, great, you know, I can do whatever I want. I can be, no, 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 no. We already talked about that earlier in some portions here of 1 Corinthians. It's like, no, 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 you can't, being without law doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want. It's not the, it's not the liberty to do whatever you want. He's already addressed that. So he's like, look, I'm not saying without the law toward God, but I'm under the law toward Christ. We'll get into that in a little bit. But here, without the law, he calls Gentiles those who are without law. And he's not saying that the Gentiles are like lawless anarchists, okay? He's just saying they are without the benefit of having God's law. He calls them those who are without the law or those... Um, who are outside of the commonwealth of Israel in Ephesians 2. Because in Romans 9.4, Paul refers to the Jews as those who are given the law. So the Jews, their, their um, benefit, their, their privilege, if you will, was that God gave them the law. He didn't give it to the Gentiles. So in that sense, the Gentiles are without law. But also in Ephesians 2.11 and 12, he speaks of Gentiles and calls them as those who are without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. Again, they were outside of the commonwealth of Israel. They were outside of the area of blessing, if you will. They were outside of the law of God from that sense. He's not saying that they were without morals or without ethics, right? Because in Romans 2, we learn that the law of God is written on the heart. So even if you don't have the law of God given to you explicitly in two tablets of stone, you have the law of God written on your heart by being virtue, by virtue, I should say, of being created in the image of God. God has put his stamp upon you, right? And that includes his moral character. We are, by nature, given the law in our hearts. Now, of course, we reject that. We go against that. We go against our conscience. We go against the law that is on our hearts. But even godless pagans have a sense of morality. It is not enough to save them. It is not enough to give them a knowledge of God, but they have a sense of morality. You know, pretty much every culture has had prohibitions against murder, theft, and other things. So there's, that's the law of God working itself out, the law of God written on the heart. But they don't have the law in the sense of explicitly given to them by God in tablets of stone. But here what he is saying is that among the Gentiles, those without the law, I act as a Gentile, as one outside of the law. In other words, the same ritual ceremonial aspects that that he would observe in order to win Jews, he would not observe in order to win Gentiles. He didn't feel obliged to observe them with Gentiles. And this is evident that when ministering to Gentile populations, Paul didn't stress circumcision. He didn't stress kosher food laws. He didn't stress Sabbath observance as it was ordained in the law of God in the Old Testament. These things were boundary markers, if you will. They were things that set apart the Jew from the Gentile. Again, going back to Ephesians 2, Paul calls it the wall of separation. He says there was a wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. And that was not just the law, but it was all of the ceremonial aspects of it 
that the Jews had to observe, that the Jews that marked the Jews off from the Gentiles, that wall of separation, he says, in Christ has been broken down. So here Paul, though, is very careful to note that even though he acts as with those who do not have the law as one without the law, very careful, as I mentioned earlier, that he was not being without law toward God. Okay? He's under the law of Christ. Again, Jesus came to fulfill the law, the Mosaic law. He never abrogated the law in its moral sense. right? He never said the Ten Commandments, those are done away with, you don't have to do those anymore. Right? They're the Ten Suggestions now. No, no, the moral aspects of the law, if anything, under Christ, they're heightened, <laughs> right? Because what was the problem that the Jewish mindset, and particularly in the first century under Pharisaism, they saw the moral law, as long as you observe it externally, you're okay. I cannot commit murder, and I'm good. I've, I've, I fulfilled the sixth commandment by not committing murder, Jesus makes it diff more difficult. He's like, it's much more deeper than that. It's much more than saying, I haven't killed anybody. You have to not even harbor anger in your hearts toward them. How are you doing with that? Quote Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? <laughs> you know? Or, I haven't committed you know, adultery. It's like, well, how about your thought life again? How's your thought life? Are you looking at those women in their, in their robes and, you know, do you see their ankles exposed? Are, are you sort of building up lustful thoughts in your hearts? Again, it goes much deeper. Following the law of Christ, in a sense, is deeper, is harder, because Christ exposes their superficial activity under the law. In fact, he gives them a new commandment, right? John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Which is, really, it's just saying, follow the law. <laughs> the law of God is the law of love, but if you don't see it that way, then love sounds easier, but really love is harder. Right? Because the love we're talking about is not, oh, I feel you know, a warm feeling towards you, or I feel a desirous feeling towards you. The law of love says, I am willing to forego everything of me in order to benefit you. Again, what Paul's saying here, right? I will be a servant to all. I will give up my freedom for your sake. That's the law of love. That's the love that edifies. It's the love that builds up. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. Then John will say in his epistles, it's not a new commandment, really. It's just I'm phrasing it in a new way. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives the correct exposition of the law of Moses that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, right? That's what he says. He says, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to have a righteousness that goes beyond what the Pharisees have. And what do the Pharisees have? Well, they have an external righteousness. They have an external keeping of the law. You have to have something that goes beyond that. And then he expounds it in the Sermon on the Mount. So Paul here is willing to behave as a Gentile with the Gentiles as one who is outside of the law, as one who is not under the law of Moses any longer and foregoes all of those um, ceremonial aspects, but he's not doing so in a sense where he is acting lawlessly. That's his point here. But again, I'm, I'm going to behave as a Jew with Jews to win Jews. I'm going to behave as a Gentile with Gentiles to win Gentiles. And then he goes on to the weak in verse 22. Really, that's just the first half of 22. To the weak I became as weak that I might win 
the weak. Now, there's a little debate here on what we mean by the weak, because given the context of what he's been talking about, particularly chapter 8, you might think weak Christians, Christians who, are, who have a weak conscience, who are not well developed in their faith. But then he says, to win the weak, which doesn't make sense if he's already talking about weaker Christians. So I think what Paul is talking about here is people who, when converted, when you win them, will sort of become weak Christians. So again, given the context of Corinthians here, these are people who are um, kind of squishy on whether they should eat food offered to idols. So the weak that he's trying to win might be those who are still pagans, who are still worshiping those idols. When he wins them, they will probably be weak conscience Christians here. And he says, look, to the weak I'll become as one who is weak, which is exactly what he does in chapter 8, verse 13. If eating food offered to idols will make my brother stumble, I'll give that up. And I'll do that even to win them to Christ as well. I will, I will forego eating meat. I will be vegan. I'll be vegetarian. I'll do whatever it takes to win the weak. Again, he's putting in practice here what he says in verse 1. Look, my knowledge says one thing. My knowledge says this meat offered to an idol is nothing because the idol is nothing. And I'm okay to eat meat. Meat is fair game. But what does love do? Love builds up. Love edifies. Love forgoes that liberty, that right, that freedom that you have in order to win the weaker brother. And what he's doing here with the weak, in a sense, would be akin to sort of going to sinners and expecting them to clean up their act before coming to Christ. Right? That's what Paul doesn't want to do. <laughs> right? Paul doesn't want to go to a group of believers and says, in order to come to Christ, you have to clean up your act first. You have to stop all of that. And then, then you can come to Christ. You have to, you have to be perfect. You have to be sanctified before coming to Christ. He doesn't want to put roadblocks in the way of evangelism. Now, to be sure, you know, while you, know, you can come just as you are, right? the gospel doesn't want you to stay as you are. <laughs> right? The gospel doesn't want you to stay as you are. You have to repent of your sin. You have to repent of your sin. You need to turn to Christ in faith. But... I think what Paul is saying here is, look, there's no work of pre-conversion that you have to do in order then to be converted. Okay? He's like, look, if you're weak, if you're a Gentile, if you're a Jew, I'm going to do what I need to do to win you, bring you in, and then we'll build you up. We'll build you up in the faith. We'll strengthen your faith. If it is weak, we will work on you. That is the loving thing to do. Again, everything in this passage serves the ultimate goal of winning more to Christ. I have become all things to all men that by all means I may save some. All, all, all. (laughs) I will do all things for all people by all means to win some. And he does this for the sake of the gospel. Paul wraps this up in a sense. In a sense, you could say Paul was like a chameleon, right? You know, if he was 
on a green leaf, he would turn green. If he was on a brown stick, he would turn brown. He would do, again, what, he would, what, he would, what it would take in order to win more. With the Jews, he would be a Jew. With the Gentile, he would be the Gentile. With the weak, he would be weak in order to save some. Paul is in no way encouraging a compromising of the truth in order to present the gospel. He does not compromise the truth. Again, I point to Galatians. When the truth of the gospel is in danger of being compromised, Paul was on high alert. It was DEFCON 5 if you tried to deny the gospel in Paul's mind. If you were going to try to say, you need to do this and whatever, believe in Christ and, then Paul is like, no. Accursed on you. (laughs) You are accursed if you try to add or subtract anything from the gospel. But if it didn't mean compromising the gospel, if it meant, you know, if it meant changing some behavior in himself in order to present the gospel in a way to someone who is uh, vulnerable in any such way, then he would do that. He never soft-pedaled the truth. He never compromised the truth of the gospel. But when it came to non-essentials, Paul was flexible. He was flexible when it came to the non-essentials of the faith. Again, chapter 8, verse 13. If food makes my brother stumble, okay, I'm not going to eat meat. Okay? Meat is a non-essential. <laughs> now, I know I say that in meat country, right? You know, if you say that in Nebraska or South Dakota or Wyoming, you know, no, meat's essential, right? Okay. It's not essential to the faith. <laughs> we see this in the ministry of Jesus, right? Look, look at how Jesus behaved with the people in Jerusalem, the people in Israel, right? He would eat with the, the sinners and the tax collectors. Does that compromise Jesus? Does that make Jesus a sinner? That's what the Jews thought. You associate with sinners and tax collectors, therefore, you must be a sinner and a tax collector. You drink wine, you are a wine-bibber. Right? You, you hang out with prostitutes, you must be a fornicator. Jesus was never... Comp- Jesus, okay, right? This all comes from the whole Jewish aspect of clean and unclean and so, so on and so forth. Jesus, as the Son of God, could touch the unclean and not be made unclean. He would make that person holy. Right? Jesus was the Son of God. He would associate with the sinners. He would associate with the weak. He was kind to them, right? Jesus would never quench the smoldering wick. He would never break the bruised reed. His harshest criticism were for the Jewish religious leaders who were hypocrites, people who should have known better but didn't, didn't act that way. He was harshest to them. I mean, consider how he ministered the difference in John chapter 3 and 4, how he ministered to Nicodemus and how he ministered to the woman at the well. No one would go to the woman at the well. That's why she went out at midday. No one would approach her because she was considered to be a whore, a prostitute, a a, a slut, if you will, to use very vulgar language. She was because she had multiple husbands and she was living with a man who wasn't her husband, she would go out at midday when no one else was there to avoid all of the harsh ridicule and um, criticism that she would receive. Jesus approaches her and asks her for a glass of water. and She's amazed. Not just amazed that anyone would dare to speak to her, but that a Jewish man would dare to speak to her. And then with, with Nicodemus, he's... He's open, but he's a little more critical, right? It's like, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? 
How can I teach you spiritual truth if you don't even understand the earthly truth I'm teaching you? No, he never broke the bruised reed. He never quenched the smoldering wick. He was confrontational with the Pharisees because of their hypocrisy. And we see case studies of this in the book of Acts, right? Paul would go to the synagogues. When he went to the synagogues, he would reason from the scriptures. When he went to the, to the, uh, the, the Gentiles in the Areopagus, he would reason from nature and man's innate sense of the divine. In both cases, Paul never compromised the truth. He was all things to all men that he might win some. Now I'm looking at the clock. Wow. I still have more to go. I'll I'll make it brief here. It comes down to something we call contextualization. Now, people hear that word, contextualization, and it might sound like compromise. But the idea is the gospel's for all men. Right? It's not for the Jew only, it's for the Jew and the Gentile. Paul says that in Romans. The gospel is the power of salvation to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. You have to present the gospel in such a way that doesn't compromise the truth, but that is understandable to those to whom you are speaking. It has to make sense to all men. The gospel will look different in an African context than it does in a North American context. It's still the same gospel, but you will present it, you will bring it differently. And I think it's something, sadly, I feel that the reform world is a little lagging behind the evangelicals in this sense. While I do agree with the goal of establishing reformed churches is laudable, I feel sometimes we want those indigenous reformed churches in other countries to look like our churches here in America, right? You gotta sing the same hymns we do. You have to look like a bunch of little Europeans. Like that's not how it works. The goal of contextualization is for the sake of the gospel. We want to never compromise the message of the gospel, but we want to present it in such a way that it can be received by all men. And I'll stop there. Uh, Next time we'll try to finish chapter 9. Let's close in a word of prayer, and then we'll get ready to worship. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that for the sake of the gospel, Paul was willing to do whatever it took without compromising the gospel, without breaking the law of God, but would do and sacrifice in his own life whatever it would take to make sure that he could present that gospel free of charge to Jew, Gentile, weak, strong, slave, free, men, women, doesn't matter. And Lord, I pray that we will have that same zeal for the gospel, Lord, to to do whatever it takes, to forego whatever liberties we may have in Christ in order to present the gospel free of charge to those in our circles. I pray, Lord, that as we go forth as lights in this world, that the light of Christ will shine, that the love of Christ will be made manifest, and that people will see our good works and give glory to your name in heaven above. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.